From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrin. Thanks for inviting me into your home, long-haul truck, RV, camper, taxi, your parents' well-appointed rec room, your loft, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. Hello to all of you listening in on one of our affiliate stations across North America. About 40 stations now, if you can believe it. And you can find a list of affiliates at strangeplanet.ca in the radio section. Hello to all of you who listen in via the Conspiracy Show podcast. And that's all over the place, Conspiracy Show Podcast. Don't forget the new podcast, Conspiracy Unlimited, which drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And those who catch us on the YouTube channel, uh, don't forget to subscribe. And the Zoomer Radio app and the Conspiracy Show app, both fantastic uh, apps, both free downloads. However and wherever you're listening, I bid thee the warmest of welcomes, and I thank you for your fine company. Uh, Rosemary Ellen Guiley uh, is here. She joins us once a month to discuss all things paranormal. And we're going to get into curses for the first half of the hour. Not only cursed objects, but also intergenerational family curses like the Kennedys. Uh, then in the second half, our paranormal news roundup. Rosemary is one of the world's preeminent paranormal investigators and the author of about 70 books many of which are encyclopedic works on angels and the saints, werewolves and vampires and ghosts, etc. I always look forward to her dropping by. Hi, Rosemary. How are you? Well, doing well, Richard. Uh, Gearing up for the year, and um, I think it's going to be an exciting year. I've got uh, lots of things planned, new books, a lot of events, a lot of travel coming up. You just never stop. How many books do you have in the pipeline right now? Be honest. Three, four? (laughs) Uh, I've got four. (laughs) Ha-ha! Nailed it! And uh, they'll probably all make it out this year, too. And then uh, I also have books by other people coming out uh, because I publish other authors' works now through my yes. um, Visionary Living Publishing. Yes, VisionaryLiving.com. Your output is just remarkable. You are so prolific. How do you do it? Where do you get the energy? Well, I've always had good concentration and focus. And for reasons that I can't explain, and I'm not even sure I want to explain because you never want to lose the magic, is that how I write it is usually how it's published. I do very little revision. That's how it falls into my head. So I do a lot of research and um, mental organizing of material. Then I start writing, and like I said, I, I don't have to do much on the revision end. So that has enabled me to have a very prolific output through uh, my career. And it's such a rich vein to be mine, this whole paranormal metaphysical field. There's just never any shortage of things to write about, obviously. It just never stops, Uh, and that's one thing that I like about it. There's always a new mystery to be explored or more to be known uh, about some other area. And because I work in a lot of different fields, you know, I I, um, do the paranormal, metaphysics, cryptids, UFOs, Mm -hmm. uh, mysterious, unexplained phenomena, it gives me uh, a wide range of material to go into. So I, I'm constantly engaged in something new and exciting. Well, here's a topic I know that you've written extensively about, and uh, you're definitely sort of the go-to individuals to talk about curses. And uh, the reason I bring this up, I was recently reading online about this. It was a dynasty in India. I won't get into the details now, but going back into like the 1600s, And this dynasty, one generation after the next, it was just one curse after another. When we're talking about curses, I mean, we talk often about cursed objects and cursed people. But is it possible for a family 
to be cursed so that it just carries on one generation after the next? Yes, it certainly is, and we have seen that throughout history, and we have a very modern example in the Kennedy family here in America. Sure. You could say that it's the old biblical curse, the sins of the father being visited on the son, so to speak, that if there have been bad actions, a misuse of power by someone in a powerful family, that can bring a curse on a bloodline, especially if some of the same power games are played by uh, subsequent generations. The Kennedy curse, I, I don't know where we would begin. I guess maybe with the eldest brother, Joe, uh, that was killed in a plane crash during the Second World War. And then I believe there was a sister who died as well. I mean, and then, of course, John and Ted and Robert and on and on it goes. And, and then in the uh, second, even the third generation now. Yes, and it all revolves around power. Um, the greed for power and the manipulation of it. And uh, the curious thing is, however, uh, why do some people manage to get away with this and others not? It might have to do with uh, guilt that builds up in, um, in individuals and uh, is sort of spiritually carried from one generation to, uh, to another. And then sometimes I think there are examples set, too, that uh, by seeing these sorts of things play out, we're all given lessons in uh, the consequences of um, the wrong use of power and money. Are you someone who subscribes to the idea of uh, uh, karma? Yes, because I believe in reincarnation. And uh, I do believe that lifetimes are compensatory, that um, we are rewarded for the good things we do and we have to compensate for uh, the bad things that we do. And that uh, this serves as, as an explanation for why bad things happen to some people. There's also the idea, I understand, in reincarnation that you choose the circumstances of your next incarnation because you want to sort of slowly increase your vibration and your consciousness each lifetime that you have. And so that it's possible that some people actually choose these lives that end tragically because I guess that's just another lesson they need to learn on their road to getting off this Hindu wheel of life. So is it possible then, for example, that Jack Kennedy and Robert Kennedy and eldest brother Joe and their sister Kathleen, she also died in a plane crash, they chose these lives that would end tragically? On a soul level, perhaps so, and that's a very popular explanation in uh, some metaphysical circles that we do make those choices, that uh, when we go into the afterlife, we have a chance to review our lives and make an assessment. There's no big eternal judgment, but we pass judgment on our own lives, and we come to an understanding that in order to advance spiritually and, and better ourselves, we have to do something to pay for what we've done. And souls who wish to advance more quickly will make choices then to get those payments out of the way. Otherwise, you can become locked in very long cycles of having things visited upon you. Another possible explanation for the Kennedys, I'm not sure how you feel about this one, is that occasionally, you know, a cursed item will find its way into the possession of a family, and we can get into the Hope Diamond, and it's nearly a dozen victims. But I'm wondering, do you think it's possible? I don't know if anyone has ever investigated this. Is it possible that the Kennedys somehow came into possession of a cursed item? It's possible. We don't have any evidence that that's the case. 
But whenever people have something, especially powerful people, if they have something unusual like a piece of jewelry or prized possession, and then something tragic happens to them, we make, uh, and this is a natural human reaction, there is an immediate association of tragedy and misfortune with certain objects. Let's say, for example, hypothetically, that maybe the patriarch of the family, Joseph Kennedy, had a ring that he wore all the time, and uh, this was one of his personal marks of power. And then uh, tragedy starts happening. Well, that ring could take on the association of misfortune because it's part of his energy, and then it becomes part of the energy and the misfortune as well. This is often believed to be the case with jewelry items like the Hope Diamond. In the case of the Kennedys, we don't have any real evidence of a cursed object, but we have other examples throughout history and, of course, John Zappas and I have done a couple of books on haunted objects, many of them cursed, yes. del- some deliberately by people, and, and some through misfortune. Uh, with the Hope Diamond, there is a long history of people who've owned it who have had bad things happen to them. The original, um, if I'm remembering the story correctly, didn't it all begin when the original Hope Diamond was stolen from a Hindu statue by the first owner? Well, that's um, that's a legend, ah. and nobody nobody really knows exactly how true that is. It sounds like an Indiana Jones Temple of Doom kind of story. <laughs> Indeed, but, it does. Uh, the diamond was originally quite large, and was over 115 carats. It was called the Tavernier Blue because. Uh, a man named John Baptiste Tavernier supposedly plucked it out of uh, a temple idol um, in India. And the diamond did come out of India. But um, in the 1600s, then, it winds up um, in France and um, into the possession of King Louis XIV. And it is from there that um, uh, the misfortune goes. Now, uh, Jean Baptiste Tavernier... Um, uh, died in, in a very unpleasant way. He had a, a after he stole the diamond, he came down with a fever, and then it was said, according to lore, that his body was ravaged by wild dogs or wolves. That's how I want to go, <laughs> <laughs> don't we all? But then there are other reports that he really lived until he was 84 years old. But you know, it makes for a good story. But mm. you know, some of this you just can't dismiss because um, so. Um, the king uh, gets it, King Louis the the Fourteenth. He has it cut down in size, and um, he wore it. Uh, it was called the French blue, and and the diamond has a blue color. And um, Louis the Fourteenth didn't die pleasantly either. He died of gangrene. Yikes! Um, some of that you can say. Well, back in those days, these are the sorts of things that happen to people. Mm. Um, but nonetheless, uh, all of his. Um, children, at least his legitimate children, died in childhood. So there's this aura of tragedy that then um, starts building up. And people around the king um, had uh, very unfortunate deaths as well. So, of course, the the diamond then is um, passed on down the royal line. And guess who gets it? Louis XVI and his wife Marie Antoinette. Mm -hmm. And we know what happened to them. Oh, that ended well. Oh, yes. Uh, beheaded in the French Revolution. And um, so it passes through Do a we lot know, of Sorry, let me, let, let me just um, interject for one moment. Are there any paintings that show 
Marie Antoinette wearing the gem? I mean, there, she was painted. There were many paintings of her. Have you ever seen a painting of her wearing the, the blue diamond? You know, I have not. But I, that's something that I haven't specifically researched either. But while more recent owners of the diamond have been photographed and painted wearing the gem, I'm not aware of one with her. All right. Listen, we're going to take a time out when we come back. Oh, here's an additional one. Marie Antoinette, one of her, I guess, her entourage, or a member of her court, apparently wore the diamond on special occasions, and uh, she was attacked by a mob in a horrible fashion. She was hit with a hammer, decapitated, stripped, and disemboweled, among other things. <laughs> That's not bad enough. And then her head was impaled on a pike and carried to Marie Antoinette's prison window. Uh, all for wearing the, the blue diamond, perhaps. We'll uh, pick this up on the other side. Rosemary Ellen Guiley, right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Big Brother is listening, and so are you, to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. We are back with Rosemary Ellen Guiley. We're talking curses. And um, where did we leave off? We had uh, Louis the Fourteenth. Uh, he, uh, he, he died of gangrene. He had the uh, the Hope Diamond. Uh, all of his children, I think, save for one, uh, died in childhood. Uh, it gets passed down to uh, Louis the um, the uh, the Sixteenth, and of course uh, Marie Antoinette. Uh, she had a rather uh, uh, tragic end. Beheaded, of course. A member of her court. Her closest confidant was killed. She wore the, the diamond on occasion. Then where does the diamond go from there, Rosemary? Well, it goes to a, uh, a Dutch jeweler by the name of Wilhelm Falls. Now, he re- had the diamond uh, recut again. And, by the way, in its present uh, state, it is a little over 45 carats. So it's down considerably from its original 115 carats. Why did they keep cutting it down? Did they think they would, they would reduce the, the curse if they did that? or? Uh, it was usually a way of trying to enhance the brilliance of the diamond. Ah. Uh, over time, uh, different techniques have been developed for faceting uh, stones in order to have uh, more brilliance um, show, and that was probably uh, one of the reasons. It could be that in its uh, original 115-carat form, it was rather crudely cut, and um, by reducing it in size and changing the faceting, uh, it would be uh, a more impressive stone. Maybe by cutting it each time, they just enraged the Hindu gods further. Well, it could be, because um, some things are not meant to be altered. And if that story was true, uh, that the diamond had once been in an idol in a sacred temple, um, altering it, uh, stealing it uh, in the first place, and then altering it uh, would bring about uh, the rage of the gods, so to speak. Okay, so what happened to Wilhelm Falls, the Dutch jeweler? Well, um, his son murdered him and then killed himself. Ah, of course. Uh, and uh, here again, you know, you could make the argument in any individual case that, uh, well, you know, tragedies happen, but when it all, all these things stack up around a single piece of jewelry, it starts to get very interesting. So then a Greek merchant uh got it, and uh, he winds up driving his car over a cliff and killing himself, his wife, and uh, his child. Oh, my. Now, in more recent times, then, it came into the possession of an heiress named Evelyn Walsh McLean, and she owned the Washington Post, um, and she loved the diamond, and she wore it. She put it on her dog and let him run around in it. 
and then mysteriously deaths start happening around her mother-in-law or son. Her husband leaves her for another woman uh, and then dies in a mental ward. Uh, she piles up debt, has to sell the newspaper. Uh, her daughter dies of a drug overdose. Um, it's just one thing after another. So uh, her heirs then sold the diamond to a, a very famous jeweler named Harry Winston. Then it became the Winston diamond. It did. And um, how did you get don't exactly na- know. Sorry, I just want. How did you get the name Hope Diamond? Because it was the blue diamond. It was the French blue. When did it become known as the Hope Diamond? Do we know? I'm not really sure about that. Um, and uh, whether or not there was a legend of uh, some sort of um, oh hope hope concerning something or around the diamond or hope for a better future. Um, or I hope I get rid of this thing before it kills me. Exactly. That could be part of it, too. So now it's we the Winston Diamond, and it's Well, sold. we don't really know what happened to him, if right. anything bad happened. He was rather quiet about it. But all of a sudden, he didn't want it anymore, and so he donated it to the Smithsonian. Yeah, he mailed it to them, like, for, I don't know, $2.40 or something. Obviously, he didn't think very much of it. It's almost like, I can't get this, uh, you know, out of my possession fast enough. Maybe, yeah, maybe he re- he looked into the history and said, oh, no, thank you. So he ships it off to the Smithsonian for $2.44. Well, interestingly, in, um, in Eastern lore, uh, one way to get rid of a curse on an item is to give it away. You can't sell it. You have to give it away. Right. Hmm. And so now it's in the possession of the United States where uh, some people have said, well, uh, are some of the bad things that have happened to this country uh, recently, can they be blamed on the Hope Diamond? Interesting. Well, even the, 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 the guy apparently that um, when, when Harry Winston mailed it, the mailman who delivered the diamond to the Smithsonian uh, had his leg crushed in an accident shortly thereafter. And his house burned down. Oh, yes. Jeez, my word. So, yes, it's not just the principal people involved with these cursed objects, but sometimes the people around them. It's as though some sort of baleful energy extends out into their lives and environment and affects other people as well. And and some of these people are, you could say, they're innocent victims. Uh, You know, they're just in proximity of someone or handling something in some way on a temporary basis, and uh, the the malevolent um, energy associated with the object affects them as well. So now is it still at the Smithsonian? Yes, it is. And um, I've never seen it. I've never gone to the Smithsonian to see it, but it attracts many visitors every year. And it's likely to stay there. All right. Why don't we uh, spend a few moments talking about another famous cursed item. Uh, This one is uh, very intriguing, of course. I'm talking about James Dean's Porsche 550 Spider, the car he was in when it crashed. uh, He was killed in 1955, and um, uh, that car would kill and kill again. A very strange case, and uh, James Dean and um, a mechanic uh, he knew were en route to a car race in Salinas, California. And uh, Dean liked to drive fast. It was a Porsche Spider, and um, he had a head-on collision 
uh, in which he was killed. The mechanic was injured, and uh, the driver of the other car uh, just received minor cuts. But the car passed into possession of a mechanic that um, Dean had known, uh, George Barris, and immediately bad things started happening. Um, the, uh, in handling the wreckage, um, it, it would, like, fall on people and crush limbs and damage property. And so the first thing that happened is um, the car fell in unloading it. Um, it fell onto a mechanic and crushed his leg. Um, parts, Barris sold parts of it. He kept the body, but he sold spare parts. And people who bought the spare parts had problems. There were two doctors who bought parts, and uh, their cars went out of control um, and uh, had mysterious accidents. Um, it was put on display and taken around the country, and every time it was transported or handled, something bad would happen. Usually something would fall on people and injure them, a, 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 something with the loading or unloading of the car or the way it was displayed. People were injured all the time. Well, it couldn't, it couldn't have uh, helped the fact that, uh, I'm not sure who named it, uh, they called the car the Little Bastard, and didn't uh, James Dean have that sort of plastered uh, decals, the Little ba- Bastard, plastered all over the car? Uh, well, yes, and uh, so you, you could almost say that Dean sort of cursed the car himself um, by by giving it that name, driving it too fast, um, Objects can become cursed by the energy we put into them. And so it wasn't just the accident itself, but it might have been uh, some of Dean's own energy that w- went into it that uh, affected that. Interesting. So, so, uh, so, it, so that, it, that it became haunted in effect? I mean, what's the difference between a haunted object and a cursed object? Uh, well, uh, cursed objects are haunted objects. They're, they're haunted by the energy of, of a curse, and that whoever owns and handles the object, bad things happen to them. And um, uh, just to, to finish up the history with a little bastard, uh, so many bad things happened that George Barris decided that, that he would just store the thing. Uh, and uh, he, he uh, finished uh, exhibiting it, um, there were some cases of uh, other autos uh, that were involved in the same exhibits mysteriously burst into flames and were destroyed. Um, the, the car was put on display in schools as an example of um, what happens when you don't drive safely. And students were injured in various accidents. Finally, on, on the last uh, exhibit, it goes to Miami, Florida, and then it is packed up for the return to Barris's place in Los Angeles. And somewhere between Florida and L.A., the little bastard goes missing. And oh. it's never been found. Oh, isn't that interesting? Now, interestingly, um, we, we can presume it's probably stolen. Um, but several years ago, a man came forward and said he knew where the little bastard was. He said that he was six years old. And he remembered his father and some other men acquiring this car and sealing it up behind a wall in Whatcom County, Washington. But he wouldn't tell anybody where it was or any more information. He wanted money. Mm. And the case ended there. Oh, wow. I think there's another book there, Rosemary. <laughs> like you need another project. <laughs> 
Yep. Well, you could, you could write a book just literally on this one case. So many things happened. And they were all the same types of accidents, too. And, and um, this is often what we, we find with cursed objects. I mean, with some of them, it's money trouble. People run into financial ruin. With other people, it's um, th- their health goes uh, and deteriorates, or, or they fall into alcoholism, or their relationships get ruined. And uh, with other objects, it seems to be horrible accidents and death. And, and that was the case with the little bastard, is there were a lot of violent, damaging accidents. I don't know if this is apocryphal or not. Do you know the story of um, of Alec Guinness, actor Alec Guinness, who played, of course, Obi-Wan Kenobi and was in the, uh, um, what was that other great movie he made about the... Uh, uh, the prison camp in Burma, uh, Bridge Over the River Kwai. Uh, and his connection to James Dean, again, I don't know if this is a true story, uh, but it, supposedly James Dean met Alec Guinness outside of a restaurant. I guess they were friends at the time, and he had him take a look at his new car. James Dean was very happy with his new car. He says, Alec, what do you think of my new spider? And Guinness, again, not sure if this is true, the legend has it that he told James Dean the car had a sinister appearance, and then he told him, quote, if you get in that car, you'll be found dead in it by the time that this time next week. And sure enough, seven days later, Dean was killed. Have you heard that? Is, do you know if I that's true? Heard, I, uh, it, it, it could very well be true. I haven't heard that particular story, but there are similar stories about other people who felt very uneasy around that vehicle. For example, George Barris, who acquired mm-hmm. the wreck. Um, said that he he felt that the car gave off a very bad energy and it made him uneasy. And he told Dean uh, that he should get rid of it. Uh, but, of course, Dean just disregarded that. And uh, other friends uh, told James Dean the same thing. And um, Dean is said to have just kind of shrugged it all off by saying, well, he knew he was destined to die in a speeding car. Uh, so uh, I don't know if that's true, but is, is that a, a sense of self-fulfilling prophecy? He acquires a car, um, imbues it with a bad energy by naming it the Little Bastard, and if he has a sense of, of predestination that he's going to die in some car wreck, that energy then becomes part of the car as well. We have just about a minute here before the break. If someone has taken possession of something. Maybe it's a piece of costume jewelry. Maybe they've inherited something. You and I, years ago, we talked about a, a Masonic apron uh, here in, in the Toronto area that someone inherited. Uh, and then all of these sudden, these horrible things start to happen. If you suspect the object is cursed, just in, a, in, a, in 10 seconds or so, what do you do? Well, first of all, you get it out of your house. Mm. Uh, because uh, usually these things will create environmental disturbances, you know, haunting phenomena and nightmares and things like that. Objects can be cleansed. They can be cleansed in sunlight and salt and also through prayers and and invoking spiritual help. Uh, Sometimes people get rid of them by burying them, throwing them into deep water, taking them to the dump, something that that starts to break up the energy. All right, we'll uh, take a time out, come back, and we'll do a little paranormal roundup. Some great stories in the news. Rosemary Ellen Guiley stays with us right here on The Conspiracy Show. The world is being pulled over your eyes. 
This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett. We are back with Rosemary Ellen Guiley. Do yourself a favor. Get on up to her website, visionaryliving.com, and check out uh, her online store, uh, which has, I guess, I'm guessing about 70 books now in total, many of them major encyclopedic works. Uh, and, uh, I mean, you could really stock up your library. If you're into the paranormal and uh, the metaphysical, it's all right there. Uh, how many books is it, actually, Rosemary? Um, I think I'm up to 67 now, and I have a new one coming out in just a few weeks. Maybe we'll talk about it next month on a future show. It's called The Road to Strange, UFOs, Aliens, and High Strangeness. Excellent. All right. It's a date. Uh, I want to talk about this case. It sounds, for all the world... Uh, this took place in England like a case of spontaneous human combustion. What, what, what do you make of this, this man who died after he burst into flames on a street in Hull, England? Well, it certainly sounds like a possible case of um, human spontaneous combustion. Um, flames were seen in um, uh, coming uh, out of uh, um, residence, and um, emergency help was summoned. This just happened um, recently. Uh, last year, and uh, a man was literally on fire, and uh, emergency services arrived. Uh, he was very uh, badly burned, and no one knew how he caught fire. Uh, there were no accelerants on his body. It didn't appear to be suicide. There was no evidence of a break-in or any kind of struggle. He was so badly burned that he died at the scene. And interestingly, um, this was the second case because earlier... Um, a similar emergency had been reported where a man was um, on fire and uh, had to be uh, rushed to the hospital and um, also died as well. Now, uh, in cases of spontaneous human combustion, by the way, the first documented case we have uh, of this goes back to the, about the mid-1600s where uh, there was a French account that... Um, reported a, a woman just suddenly went up in ashes and smoke in her bedroom uh, was the description. But in, in the spontaneous human combustion, it seems like uh, the body just bursts into flame on its own. Uh, and how could it do that? It would have to be some sort of intense internal heat. Now, there are patterns to the way these bodies burn, and usually the torso burns. It's entirely consumed. But uh, the head the arms, the hands, the lower legs, and the feet usually don't. Uh, if a body's going to burn, um, it's a very unusual way to burn, and it, it takes a very high temperature to burn human flesh. The fires that affect these cases are contained to around the body. They don't seem to spread to someone's home. Hmm. Now, uh, cases that have been reported in the past, um, the, the um, burned corpses are found after the fact, and it's a puzzle as to how the fire started and why the bodies burned in the manner they did. Um, here we have two cases where at least someone saw, uh, people saw the fires and were able to get medical help there. So we don't know if um, the bodies were in fully engulfed in flames or they would have burned in that manner had uh, emergency crews not been been able to reach them. But it's a mystery that's never been solved. Yeah, I, I remember um, it was an interview or a, a quote from uh, science fiction author Arthur C. Clarke 
and and he said that the question he gets from and I don't I don't know that he wrote about this phenomenon, uh, but he said he gets at, he got asked more about spontaneous human combustion than any other any other topic, uh, which I thought was kind of odd from you know from a science fiction writer. I don't know that he, that he wrote about it, but this was something obviously that uh, that people wanted to know about from him. And it touches on our deepest uh, fears. Uh, uh, death by fire is one of the most horrible ways to die. Mm. And uh, the idea that a body can spontaneously burst into flames for no reason uh, could uh, be, I mean, it's certainly a curiosity to some people, but it, it also is deeply troubling at a very primal fear level. Uh, nobody knows why these things happen. There, there ha- haven't been uh, any obvious cases of strange diseases or uh, dietary things. Some people say, well, it's uh, the consequence of some sort of sin. Uh, this is the punishment for it. Um, that's pure speculation. Uh, but the fact of the matter is these, these cases have occurred all over the world, um, probably longer than uh, the 1600s. It's just that that's when we have the first documented report. Right. And sometimes, I, I was reading, that the internal organs are left untouched, even though the entire abdomen goes up in flame. The internal organs are left untouched. How strange is that? Well, it's it's very odd. Uh, and uh, sometimes, sometimes the, uh, like the head might be charred a little, but um, not badly burned either. And it makes no no sense that, um, especially if a torso is going to be completely consumed uh, by fire, you would think that the organs would certainly be destroyed as well. And why some of them would remain intact, um, no one has an answer for it. Hmm. Um, Just about uh, out, out of time here, heading into a break, and we'll we'll pick up some other stories. But has anyone ever survived spontaneous human combustion? Do we know? I haven't, uh, I haven't I, heard of many cases. I'm not sure about that. I believe there have been one or two cases where the combustion started and then was extinguished, but I don't have the details on that. All right, we'll uh, take a time out. We'll come back. We'll talk about a woman who claims she's had sex with ghosts and a near-death experience, but not the typical one. This person had a vision of hell where he feels all the bad things he did to others. Uh, we're being replayed. Back with more of my conversation with paranormal researcher, investigator, author, Rosemary Ellen Guiley. Stay with us. Providing the evidence and letting you draw your own conclusions. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett. We are back with Rosemary Ellen Guiley. Again, the website, visionaryliving.com. She joins us once a month to discuss all things uh, paranormal. Uh, I'm reading about these stories more and more often, uh, and that is uh, people who claim that they are having uh, sexual relations with ghosts. Uh, is that even possible, Rosemary? Well, it's called spectrophilia, and yes, it is possible. Uh, we have throughout history uh, many reports of sexual intercourse with spirits, including the dead, and demonic entities like the incubus and succubus and and other known uh, unknown uh, spirits and this has continued in into modern times as more people have come forward with with cases 
uh, I think that's encouraged others to talk about it as well. But I've interviewed many people who've, for example, uh, stayed in a haunted hotel room or moved into a haunted place, and there was something resident there that uh, started sexually pestering them at night. Uh, now, for many people, this is a terrifying experience, very unpleasant and something that they want to repel. But some people find it very pleasurable, oh even more pleasurable than human sex. Well, that's apparently what has happened to this amethyst realm, quite an interesting name. This is a 27-year-old spiritual guidance counselor. I'm not sure what that is. Uh, I think of a guidance counselor as someone in high school who tells you what kind of a career you should have. So I don't know if she's advising ghosts on, on a future uh, a career. Uh, however, she believes that she's been having a sex with at least 20 ghosts. And as you say, she now prefers them to real-life men. Uh, I don't know. How is it possible that a physical being, flesh and bone and blood, uh, could have relations of any kind with something that is spirit, non-physical. The sensations of it uh, get to be quite physical, and uh, I've encountered this with people I've interviewed and in um, some of the cases that I've researched in the literature, that um, in a typical scenario, a person is in bed, and they feel uh, something get into bed with them or climb on top of them. Uh, they're likely not to see anything, but they feel it. Sometimes they do see it. In the cases where unpleasant entities are involved, there may be horrific visions of something. But uh, something uh, gets into bed with them and then starts acting like uh, a human attempting to uh, have a sexual encounter would act. They feel a physical touching that's very arousing, um, for uh, a woman, they they feel uh, penetration. Uh, for a man, they um, they uh, get aroused and are able to uh, to have an ejaculation. And it it's all very real. It's physical. People actually feel it. And um, in the case of this young woman. Um, she evidently thought that the ghosts were doing a better job than real oh, men. And, uh, she was married. Who knows what happened to her husband? I guess uh, she wasn't real pleased with him. Apparently, he said, caught them. Uh, caught them, but he saw. He reported seeing a shadow through a bedroom window, and I caught them in the act. But when he came in to the, I guess it was obviously there was no one there. But she carried on with this person for years. How do we know it's a, it's, I mean, would this entity be, um, the spirit of a, uh, a departed human being or could it be a lower order, like an entity of uh, demonic? How can we be sure? Uh, we can't really. And there's a great blurring of the line there between the human dead and, and spirits in this. Spirits are very capable of mimicking humans. And uh, a low level spirit who wanted to have this kind of interaction with human could uh, pretend to be uh, the ghost of a dead person to make the experience more palatable. There are all ca also cases of uh, people who are in deep grief over the loss of a spouse or a partner, uh, and they have these experiences as well. So are they inviting these experiences? Is it part of a, a psychological condition that then becomes projected in a way? All of these things are possible. Uh, but the fact of the matter is that 
uh, people, both men and women, have these kinds of sexual encounters with spirits all the time. Now, this uh, woman, uh, Amethyst Realm, uh, who, again, believes that she's had uh, a series of 20 sexual partners that were ghosts, uh, she says she wants to get pregnant with a ghost baby. Well, good luck with that. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, in in earlier times, and uh, especially uh, like during the Inquisition, where um, people were reporting uh, witches sending demons to have sex with them, um, there were accounts that some sort of spirit baby would be possible. Uh, And the uh, theologians who were inquisitors actually came up with very bizarre uh, theories to support this idea. And, uh, for example, um, uh, they could only do it through collecting human semen and then using that semen to implant in a woman, and that would create this kind of weird demon spirit baby. Uh, But um, I don't think anyone's ever actually had a ghost baby. Uh, We do have people who have contact with aliens, sexual contact with aliens, who say they've they've had, uh, you know, children with them. Right. I'm wondering if that's might, what might be behind this uh, phenomenon, and particularly with with this um, amethyst realm. Is it possible she's she's actually carrying on with a an extraterrestrial or some sort of interdimensional uh, being, and and not spirit at all? My own theory on this, uh, based on her descriptions and uh, similar cases, is that these are masquerades. That what she thinks is. Uh, a ghost, uh, which would be a dead person, uh, is actually something else. And um, many extraterrestrials are described as shapeshifters, and so this would be entirely plausible within these kinds of scenarios. All right. I want to talk about um, uh, this near-death experience, but this one uh, is not the typical near-death experience. We often hear about people who uh, maybe they they die on the operating table or they die suddenly. They their body leaves their soul body leaves their body. Uh, then they see, of course, the uh, the light. They walk towards the light. They are welcomed by, you know, the the, the spirit of of relatives that have passed on. They feel this. Uh, we often hear about uh, the, the description of incredible um, unconditional love. They don't want to go back into the body and so forth. This one. Um, entirely different. This person got a glimpse of the cellar, hell. It's uh, actually a more common experience than people would like to believe. When um, descriptions of near-death experiences started coming out, uh, and Dr. Raymond Moody uh, really brought this to the fore in the 1970s with um, uh, his research on it from uh, patients that he interviewed, uh, it was very comforting to hear about these uh, celestial journeys through tunnels of light and reunions with dead loved ones and uh, sort of see the pearly gates and then come back and uh, be be able to have your life transformed. But what was always there as an undercurrent, which then uh, took a while to come out, were the people whose experiences were quite the opposite. They saw hell instead. Right. And uh, what, what happened to this one... Uh, Man who had a near-death experience when he was 19 uh, was very much like that. That um, uh, he said that uh, he was um, in a place of uh, that was very foul. He was taken by a being to this foul-smelling field. People had animal jackal faces. 
there were demonic creatures who put people in cubes, and he was told that everybody had their own customized personal hell, uh, and uh, that they suffered greatly. And and uh, so he experiences all of these horrors of hell, which are straight out of the um, um, the chap books of the, the theologians of centuries ago, um, the, the pit of hell and the punishment that await would await you if you lived a, a life of sin. So why did he have such a negative experience? Well, in, in other documented cases, um, some of it uh, can be attributed literally to guilt, guilt over uh, people who uh, have these experiences, who have guilt over things that they've done in life, may have a deep-seated fear um, that they might go to a bad place in the afterlife. And so this journey becomes an expression of that. Here was a guy who um, described himself as an alcoholic drug dealer and a thug. And um, he also tried to take his own life. That's what he, precipitated the near the out of body experience. He took he, did, he swallowed yes, up was, sleeping pills. It was an attempted suicide, and uh, his uh, mother realized what he had done. He was 19 years old, and uh, had him rushed to the hospital. And um, of course. Um, you know, in Christianity, at least, uh, it's taught that suicide is, is one of the worst sins you can commit and that it will put you in a bad place in the afterlife. So there are a lot of um, collective conditioning things going on. He's led a bad life. He attempts to commit suicide. And then what he experiences is this hell uh, that's retribution for that. So uh, he has the opportunity to come back. Um, he, he's able to save himself in this experience by asking for salvation. And um, he's finally uh, told by another being that he actually um, begged to be born into this particular life. And uh, he even chose uh, who his parents were going to be and that he had something yet that he had to do and he had to go back. And he was able to um, to transform his life as a result. Um, he was in a coma for a while, and uh, he went through a long recovery. Um, but uh, now he runs a nonprofit organization uh, to prevent suicide. Well, this this near death experience that ended with a, a vision of hell uh, may and may have ended up saving his life ultimately. Uh, quite possibly so, but. Um, it's it's very unsettling to many people to think that uh, going to the afterlife could be um, a bad trip, and uh, we're we're taught a very conservative rev- uh, view in religion that uh, you will be judged, and if you have committed bad deeds, then you're going to be punished for that. Uh, most people have some skeletons in their closet that I think they worry about through life, and. Um, uh, whether or not they're going to have to compensate for that in the afterlife. But one one of the outstanding things about the near-death experience is that uh, there doesn't seem to be a, a final judgment. Uh, there isn't um, a being standing there saying, uh, you are condemned to eternal hell uh, or rewarded to eternal heaven, that there is some sort of chance for redemption. And uh, I think that people who have committed heinous acts in life do go to hells, and that they are customized hells. They are customized 
to the acts and the psyche of the in, and fears of the individual. And that's about the worst hell you can have. Indeed. Rosemary, always a pleasure. Uh, look forward to the, um, the, the Road to Strange book about UFOs, and we'll, we'll get you back on to discuss that. And again, the website, visionaryliving.com. All the best in 2018 to you and Joe. And same to you, Richard. Always a pleasure. Indeed. The pleasure is all mine. Rosemary Ellen Guiley. All right, back next week with a brand new show. My thanks to Ian Robertson. And uh, until then, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light, what I say in a whisper. Proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite, and come on.